If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 14, or 15 rather. Uh, This is our 37th week, as I recall, in John's Gospel, so we're working our way through it section by section. This morning, we've got a long passage, uh, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Ever since I was little, I have loved to write uh, from uh, poetry in elementary school, believe it or not. Uh, who could forget the bear at the fair who had no hair, who got lost there? That was my, uh, my entry into the uh, world of poetry. Actually, it was very easily uh, forgotten. Uh, from that, I went on to short stories in middle school and prose and so on. And then in high school, opinion pieces and research papers. And then from there to uh, now, sermons and articles I've always loved to write, and if I trace back that passion, now part of it I know is wiring, but part of it I know is due to, in part at least, to a high school teacher that I had uh, by the name of Mrs. Shanks. Uh, I had Mrs. Shanks for English Comp 1 and 2 over my junior and senior years, and uh, she really inspired within me a greater desire to write, as good teachers do. She really fueled uh, that passion that I had. Mrs. Shanks was a beautiful woman, both in personality uh, and appearance, frankly. She was full of creativity and energy and life and warmth, and she was very affirming while at the same time being very tough. Um, she was very encouraging. She believed in me, which was, a, which was a comfort to me, but she also expected a lot uh, from me. I would write a paper and I would get back responses from her. She would write something like, John, this particular point is not clear. You've not made this point well. Or who is the antecedent to this pronoun? I don't really understand. Or you've used that word four times in two sentences. Repetition is the bane of a good writer. Choose a different word. I don't know if Mrs. Shanks was a Christian, but I have to imagine that from a literary perspective, she may have struggled with Jesus' farewell message that we're going to look at this morning. This is one of the most repetitive, yet original, uh, one of the most clear and yet complicated, one of the most beautiful yet disturbing messages ever delivered. This is part two of Jesus' farewell message to his disciples. And since we only have about 34 minutes to, to look at it and, and kind of lean into it, let me, let's get to the text. Let me read the entire passage uh, And we'll reflect back on it as we go along. John chapter 15, this is the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love 
has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, for, I, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. And the, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, I mentioned to you, the repetition in this passage, of course, you notice it as I read it out loud. In just 11 verses, Jesus makes reference to abiding 11 times. So over and over and over, he says, abide, abide, abide. And then seven times, we're told to bear fruit. And the consequences of not bearing fruit is revealed. And finally, as it relates to repetition, there are four conditional statements, for if-then statements that are difficult, they're weighty, they're troubling if not understood correctly, hard to make sense of. So as difficult as this passage is to organize and preach, if Jesus says something multiple times, for example, 11 times, then it's very, very important and meant to be uh, considered seriously. So what I want to do is I want to allow Jesus' repetitive statements to kind of form the outline for our passage this morning. We're going to look at three things this morning. What does it mean to bear fruit? How are we to abide in Christ? And we're going to look at the conditions that clarify abiding. So how are we to, or what, do, what does it mean to bear fruit? How are we to abide in Christ and the conditions that clarify abiding? So before we do that, though, first I want to zoom out a little bit. So I want to look at this at a very big picture lens. And I want to consider the broader context here, how this section that I just read fits in the overall context of the Bible, how this fits in the, the meta narrative, the big picture, the big story of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is frequently referred to as a vine. In fact, in Psalm 80, we read this, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So Israel is referred to as this vine that God planted and cultivated and cares for. And when the prophets talk about Israel, they also refer to Israel as the vineyard the Lord planted. Hosea, in Hosea 1, we read this, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. When I pastored in California, I used to do a lot of weddings at, at vineyards. This was a sort of a destination spot, and so we would... And, and often there was just this incredible panoramic view uh, with the, the vineyards in the background and sometimes the, the cliffs in the, in the near distance. It was just this breathtaking uh, scene. A fruitful and well-manicured vineyard is a beautiful thing. You can see from, from this picture how it's all kind of interwoven together. You have the vine which supplies the branches and the branches bear fruit and they're all connected to each other. Now, the readers of John's gospel would have been very familiar with this. They understood much more than we do about vines and vineyards because of the, uh, the culture that they lived in. Well, we know from the scriptures that Israel, this vine that God planted and cultivated, became unfaithful and was subsequently fruitless and was actually judged by God. But while Israel failed, there was one who had come, the so-called root of Jesse, the branch from the seed of David, the house of David, who would be a glorious vine. And unlike Israel, this 
one would be completely faithful, perfectly obedient to all God's commands. This one would actually be everything that Israel failed to be. This vine, this one would be that this would be the true light of the world, the true manna from heaven, the true representative of the living God. And Jesus says here in John 15, I am the true vine. And then Jesus would continue the vineyard analogy to say that those who bear fruit are the branches. In other words, those who bear fruit, they are the ones who are truly the disciples of Jesus. All right, so first, again, this idea of bearing fruit. Verse 5 tells us that those who abide in Jesus bear much fruit. Verse 6 tells us that those who don't bear fruit are cut off, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, when we read that together, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Tell you, the first thing that comes to my mind is, what in the world does it mean to bear fruit? Because I don't want to be the person who doesn't bear fruit and is thrown into the fire and burned. This is a metaphor for eternal separation from God. So I think, okay, whatever it means to bear fruit, I want to make sure that I know this and that I'm actually bearing fruit. Well, what does it mean to bear fruit? There are a lot of different answers to this question. What is spiritual fruit? Some say that what Jesus is talking about here is sustained obedience. Not perfection, mind you, but a a continuing obedience, growing in obedience to God. Others say spiritual fruit is love for one another. In fact, how often have we heard Jesus say this in the passages that we've read over the last few weeks? In fact, I just read in verse 12, Jesus says, this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. So some argue, no, the fruit that Jesus is talking about here is actually love for one another. Still others, when Jesus talks about bearing much fruit, say he's talking about disciple-making. So, so a true a fruit-bearing person will make disciples who make other disciples. This is the person who shares his or her faith. This is the person who's out in the world as representatives of God. So they say this is actually disciple-making. And finally, some argue that bearing fruit is a reference to fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, and so on. So we want to know what it means to bear fruit. So what is the correct interpretation? Is it option A, B, C, or D? Of course, you know the answer. The answer is yes. It's all of those things. Because this is a metaphor, and Jesus speaks in parables and stories and metaphors, we actually do harm to the text if we try to nail him down to a very simple, concrete, singular meaning. So he's talking about all of these things. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson explains it this way, this fruit is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith, embracing all of the believer's life and the product of his witness. In other words, the fruit that Jesus is talking about here is broad. It's very broad. Now, let let me summarize it this way. This is our first point. Those connected to Jesus have a love for God and neighbor that overflows in humble sacrifice and joyful obedience. Those connected to Jesus have a love for God and neighbor that overflows in humble sacrifice and joyful obedience. See, being a fruitful Christian works from the inside out. It begins with a heart of complete dependence upon God. It begins with faith, actually believing in who Jesus is. He is the one God sent. Believing in what he came to do, what he accomplished, and what he continues to do. 
It's not about checking off a list of good behaviors. Otherwise, the Pharisees, the the religious folks of the day, would have been the greatest fruit producers of all time. But what does Jesus say about them? He says, you're whitewashed tombs, sons of the devil. See, fruit is a metaphor used to describe the outward demonstration of one's inward disposition. The fruit we produce just reveals what's going on inside of us. Fruit shows itself in a change of our, in our affections, the things we used to love, the sins we used to relish, we now despise. It shows itself in a change in our confidence. We used to really, really be rooted in, put our faith in our own ability, our own goodness, and now that's changed. Our faith is actually in someone else, in a person. Fruit shows itself in a, in, in a change in where we locate our identity. Our identity, what, in other words, the very thing that defined us most used to be what we do for a living or how we are as a parent or some sort of skill set or ability that we have. And now that identity is actually rooted in not what we can do, but what someone else has done for us. Now, these are things that we can't produce in ourselves. Love for God, hatred of sin. We can't produce a confidence in the gospel. These are supernaturally provided to those who abide. This is why Jesus makes it clear in verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So those who abide demonstrate fruit. Now, remember the second part of this. What does it mean to abide? What are we talking about when we talk about abiding? Well, Let's look at this more closely. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. In verse 7, Jesus says, Abide in me, and my words abide in you. In verses 9 and 10, Abide in my love, just as I abide in my Father's love. Now, I want you to notice something. It's very important. That we have here, we have the phrase, Abide in me, which is a command. That's an imperative. Used, it's issued to Jesus' disciples and all who would ever follow Jesus. But the phrase, as I abide in you, is actually a promise. So there's a command and a promise. There is, if you were here a few weeks ago, there is an imperative, do this, abide in me. There is an indicative, that which indicates what is happening. That is, Jesus says, he will abide in us. So on the command side, Jesus is saying, remain in me. I guess more casually, stick with me. Don't turn away. Don't follow your own wisdom. Don't follow your own insights. Don't become your own functional savior. I think the best way to interpret it, which again is a little colloquial, but I think it's this. Jesus is saying, make your home in me. Continue to recognize, rest in, put your trust in. Make as your only foundation who I am and what I have done, Jesus says. And Jesus actually tells us how we abide. First of all, by prayer, Jesus says. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you, done for you. Verse 16, that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he will give you. So prayer is one of the ways that we abide in Christ. Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence. Prayer is the means by which we powerless individuals entrust ourselves to an all-powerful God. You know, I, I know it sounds like a standard answer, but I do have people say to me on a regular basis, like, I just don't, I just don't feel it right now. I mean, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel His presence. I don't even feel like I'm a Christian. 
And, and again, my answer almost always is the first thing I ask them is, have you told God about this? Have you been open with the Lord about this? Tell God about it. Ask Him to strengthen your heart. Ask Him to deepen your faith. Pray that God would reveal Himself to you, that He would keep you by, by His grace. I pray this all the time. I pray it for myself. I pray it for my family. I pray it for you, that God would keep us by His grace. Because one of the ways that God causes us to abide is through prayer. Now also, we pray, we pray that we would bear fruit. So we pray for compassion for our neighbors. We pray that God would bring some to saving faith as we share our faith. We pray that God would, would give us a growing confidence in the gospel. We pray that God would empower us to resist temptation. We pray that God would give us a heart for the nations. These are the, the prayers that God says He will answer in the passage we just read. As Christians, we, we believe in the miraculous, don't we? We believe that God does things that actually defy and transcend logic. But we also know that God makes the miraculous happen through the prayers of His people. This is the paradigm we see in Scripture. This is the example we see in Scripture that God does incredible, amazing, supernatural things as His people pray. I've got a friend who lives in Spain in a little area called Catalonia, which is close to Barcelona. And about a week ago, his 16-year-old daughter was out walking in the street, just going from one place to another. She was hit by a car uh, by a man who was uh, strung out on drugs. My friend, his name is Stephen. He's a church planter. He, of course, stopped everything he was doing and, and, and put someone else over all his responsibilities and attended to his daughter who's in the hospital. And he just started praying relentlessly and fasting and pleading with people around the world to pray. Initially, the brain damage seemed so severe that there was no real hope for any sort of normal recovery. His daughter was in a coma, totally unresponsive, but he just kept pleading with God, wrestling with God, just kept going to God on his knees and saying, God, please heal my daughter. About two nights ago, he sent out a Facebook message that his daughter's name is Naime. Naime is alert and moving. We were just informed by the, by the, surgeon, the neurosurgeons that Naime is in for a, long, a year-long recovery. But they're saying she should fully recover from this trauma. At one point, I said, no, the, the, your daughter's been hit by a car while she's on foot. There's, there's no hope. But my friend Stephen believed in the miraculous because he believed in a God who can do all things. Now, it doesn't mean every time we pray, God's going to give us exactly what we ask for. But Jesus does make it clear that that we abide by praying, we abide in the vine through prayer. Now, the second way we abide is, Jesus says in verse 7, is by continuing in His Word. As the Word is preached and taught, as it is discussed in small groups and around the dinner table, as it is privately read, we actually then make our home in Jesus. This is how we abide in Christ, by taking in the Word. When we take in the written Word, we are kept close to the living word to whom it testifies. And finally, we abide in Jesus by our obedience to Christ's commands. What happens when we obey? Well, we find God to be totally satisfying. We actually come to realize that His ways are better than our ways, and so our trust in God and His provisions actually grows. So those are the ways that we abide in Christ, at least from this passage. 
But as I mentioned here, there's not just a command, there's also a promise. So yeah, we're told, abide in Christ. Jesus says, abide in me. But then he says, as I abide in you. So there's a command, but there's also a promise. And on the promise side of the equation, when Jesus says, as I abide in you, he's saying, look, I have made my home in you. I'm telling you to make your home in me, but I've made my home in you. In other words, you and I have been united. And he explains in this message how this works. Verse 3, I have cleansed you. Verse 9 and 12, I have loved you. Verse 13, I lay down my life for you. Verse 14, I have called you friends. Verse 15, I have chosen you. So again, we see this pattern by Jesus. Before he, he makes a command, before he says, do this, he says, look, I want to tell you what's been done. Do this follows this has been done. And here it is again. Before the world was made, God loved us. He then came to the earth to die for us because of his love for us. He then endured the the shame and punishment of a cross so that those who believe would be cleansed, so that those he has chosen would put their trust in him and actually be made friends. And those he has reconciled to himself by faith, he actually keeps close to himself and he produces in them and through them much fruit. Here's our second point. Those who have been loved, chosen, and cleansed will bear fruit. The power of the vine will ensure it. Those who have been loved, chosen, and cleansed, they will bear fruit because of the power of the vine. Now, please, make no mistake here. We're not passive in this in terms of the fruit bearing. We've already seen we're called to pray we're called to abide in the Word, that is to continue to take in the Word. We're called to, uh, to, uh, to pray and obey. But ultimately, it will be the one who laid down his life for us, who chose us and cleansed us and who redeemed us, who lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us, and who intercedes for us even now, ultimately will be the vine that produces the fruit. If you put your faith in Christ this morning, God is not finished with you yet. That's a certainty. He's not finished with you yet. Far from it. He's still at this moment. He is molding you. And He is shaping you. And He is conforming you to the image of His beloved Son. And He's chipping away those rough edges. And He's softening your heart. And He is empowering you to obey. And He's giving you a love for your neighbor. He's deepening your faith and... He is bearing fruit through you. Now, a couple of warnings here. I guess cautions is a better way to say it. A couple of cautions. On a farm or an orchard, there are many kinds of fruits, right? Many kinds of fruit trees. Apples, orange, pomegranate, lemon, pear, and different varieties between each kind of tree. So there are a lot of different kinds of fruit trees and a lot of varieties within each kind of tree. When's the last time, by the way, you shopped for apples? There are a lot of different kinds of apples, aren't they? My daughter sent me to the store last week to get apples uh, for her lunch. And she said, okay, Daddy, I I like Fuji, I like Red Delicious, and and I like uh, Granny. No, I don't like Fuji. I've got to get this right here or she'll correct me. I don't like Fuji. I don't like Red Delicious. I don't like Granny Smith. I love Honeycrisp. I love Envy, and I love Pink Lady. I said, are you serious right now? Here's what you're going to get, red or green. 
You tell me, you want red, I'll get red. You want green, I'll get green. It's kind of like uh, I should have given her the option that I got a few years ago. I was traveling uh, from Chicago back to, uh, or from London back to Chicago on British Airways, and it was a 11 p to like 9 a.m. flight, so I'd fallen asleep. And uh, naturally, it was dark, and so I, I, someone tapped me on the shoulder at probably about 5 a.m., and it was the flight attendant. It was a male flight attendant who, who said, uh, I was kind of groggy, and I woke up. He said, uh, breakfast? I said, oh, okay, okay, what are my options? He said, take it or leave it. I said, okay, well, I guess that's, uh, I guess I know what to, what to look forward to. Uh, I, I should have given that to, to my daughter. Look, here, you, you want apples? Take it or leave it. But I said, okay, what kind do you want? There are all kinds of different fruit trees and even varieties within each kind of tree. And in the same way, we as disciples bear different kinds of fruit. So here's the, here's the caution. It's not wise for us to be spiritual fruit inspectors of other people. It's not wise for us to, because you know what this looks like. We have our favorite ministry. We have our personal convictions. We have our passion when it comes to the kingdom or spiritual rhythms or whatever else it is. And everybody else should have those same passions. Everybody else should be just as committed to the same ministry that we are. Everybody else should be committed to the same spiritual rhythms that we are. And if they're not, we say, you know what, you're not... You're not bearing the right kind of fruit here. That's being a spiritual fruit inspector. God didn't put us on the earth to be judges of other people's fruit. Now you say, well, does that mean that we can never point out when a brother or sister is sinning? That's not what I'm saying at all. If a brother or sister is caught in a sin, we're actually commanded to correct, to gently, humbly correct that person and restore that person gently but not if someone simply violates our preferences. Several years ago, I was leading a different church, and I asked a guy and his wife to take over our college ministry. Um, it was floundering kind of when they took it over, but they poured themselves into it and reorganized the ministry so that 40 or 50 students were gathering together on Sunday nights to, to worship together by music, to, to talk and read through the Scriptures and so on. Well, it was going so well that a few folks from another church who didn't have a college ministry, they decided to join our college ministry, which I thought was totally fine. I was not against that. I mean, it was a good thing for a while. But these new students brought with them from their church a very judgmental, legalistic attitude. So they started to confront their peers in a variety of areas. For example, what they were watching on TV. Someone said, you watch The Office. Tell me, how was that edifying? Would you watch that if Jesus were here? Then they started to confront, their confrontation spread to other ways, the way that some of the students were dressing, mostly the young ladies. It was never very subtle either. A guy would ask a young lady, do you think it's appropriate for a young Christian woman to wear jeans with holes in them to a church gathering? Well, this, well, this woman actually had jeans with holes in them. Um, the young lady would never respond well. Typically it was, don't ever talk to me again. And then the judging started to focus on a person's level of spiritual commitment. Now, remember this question actually being uh, presented to other people where some of these students who had come from another church were saying to the students that were part of my church, they're saying, you know, is it really that important to study and get good grades? Isn't the advancement of the kingdom more important? As if those two are sort of mutually exclusive. Shouldn't you really be studying less and worrying less about your grades and actually out evangelizing a lost world? Soon these fruit checkers had poisoned what was actually a very thriving ministry. 
where the Spirit of God was active. So that's, that's one caution. We're not called to be fruit checkers. Here's the other caution. Actually, it's very encouraging. How does fruit grow over time, doesn't it? So it is with the fruit we produce. For the Christian, fruit, bear, fruit bearing is not a mass production industry. In other words, bearing fruit spiritually is much like bearing fruit agriculturally. I came across this statement the other day by a national farmer said this, In a culture that is largely inundated with instant gratification, the natural process of growing fruit trees may seem like an eternity. You know, it's actually very much like that with bearing spiritual fruit. It may seem like we're not really bearing much fruit. It may seem like this growing process takes an eternity. It may seem like, again, as we've said before, it's kind of two steps forward and one step back or or vice versa. And if we're constantly navel-gazing, that is, we're constantly looking down, looking inward, focused on the, the, the fruit that we're bearing minute by minute, or looking at the fruit other people are bearing or not bearing, we'll just get frustrated that we don't see more on the tree, more on our tree, more on the tree of others. But if our focus is on Jesus, paradoxically, we actually become more fruitful, less anxious, less worrisome, less judgmental. When we actually look at Jesus, the one who was perfect in our place, the one who died on the cross for us, the one who humbled himself to this gruel, shameful death, the one who was raised again on the third day, the one who even now is pouring out his love in us, who is interceding for us, when we focus on the completed work of Christ, we actually find in a paradoxical way, we become more loving. We become more fruitful. All right, finally, now let's look at the conditions. We've looked at what it means to bear fruit, how we abide, and now quickly let's consider these conditional statements. Now, there are four of those, but I just want to look at the two most difficult. Verse 10, we read this. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, this is... I think we have to admit this is somewhat troubling if we don't understand it. Is Jesus saying that his love for us is contingent on our obedience? Could Jesus possibly be saying that if you don't obey me or if you have a bad day in terms of your disobedience, then I'm actually going to withhold my love for you? Because that is what it seems like it's saying. Could Jesus be saying that he will consider us friends if we obey and he will consider us enemies If we disobey, well, whenever we read the conditions in Scripture, we want to consider them at face value, of course, but we also have to, at the same time, interpret them in light of the entirety of Scripture. And the overall witness of Scripture is that those who are in Christ, chosen by Him, loved by Him, redeemed by Him, purchased by Him at great cost, they will also be kept by Him. They will persevere. So this is not a threat by Jesus that you may be friends with me now, but be careful because if you have a bad day, we're not going to be friends anymore. This is not a threat by Jesus who's saying, if you stop obeying me uh, for a moment, then I'm not going to love you. Jesus is not saying that. He's He's not even saying you may be loved by me now, but if you don't get your act together, keep your act together, I'm taking my love for you. 
What these conditions show us is not that Jesus' love is fickle or it's here today and gone tomorrow. His love is steady and unwavering and something we can rest in. What these conditions show us is that those who have been loved by Him, with that steady and unwavering love, show it by their desire to do His will. Here's our final point. Our obedience to Christ's commands demonstrates that we have received His life-surrendering love. Our obedience to Christ's commands, our obedience doesn't deserve, it doesn't merit, it doesn't earn Christ's love. It simply demonstrates that we have received, we have been recipients, we have received Him and His life-surrendering love. This is the greatest love possible, by the way. He makes this clear. There is no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for his friends, and Jesus has done that for us. He has come to the earth. He has obeyed the Father perfectly in every way. He has done what Israel failed to do in keeping the Father's commands. In all the ways that Israel failed, Jesus, the true vine, has succeeded. And in all the ways that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. His obedient record is ours by faith. By faith, we are connected to the true vine. And it is our continued obedience that gives evidence that we as branches are actually connected to the vine. Now you say, well, how do you know that from this passage? Well, how do we know that God is not saying, if you disobey me, I'm taking my love for you, or or you're becoming my enemy? Well, in two places it's clear, verses 8 and verse 10. Verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and do what? And so prove to be my disciples. Not, he doesn't say, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so become my disciple. He doesn't say, by, by bearing much fruit, you actually show yourself worthy to be a disciple. He says, you so prove. In other words, you demonstrate, you reveal, you give evidence that you actually are my disciple. So our fruit bearing, all the things we talked about earlier, that simply reveals that we are connected to the vine. It doesn't connect us to the vine. It's not as though we, we, we show that we're loving, we're kind, we're helping other people, we're even telling other people about Jesus. That doesn't connect us to the vine. That shows we are connected to the vine. Now look at verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and so abide in His love. Jesus says, in the same way that I have kept my Father's commands and abide in His love, you do as well. Well, let me ask you this. Was Jesus ever in jeopardy of being not loved by the Father? Was Jesus ever in jeopardy of being disowned by the Father? We know that would be impossible. How many times has Jesus already said to us in the last six chapters of John that He and the Father are one? I and the Father are one. It is impossible for Jesus to be disowned by the Father. It's impossible for Jesus to fall out of the Father's love. This could never, ever happen. His keeping the Father's commandments didn't gain for Him the Father's love. That just demonstrated that He was the one sent by God, loved by God from all eternity. Well, if you're in Christ this morning, you turn from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, you are never in jeopardy of losing the Father's love. 
If you put your faith in Christ this morning, you are as secure in the Father's love as you could possibly be. God's promises are yours in Christ. After all, He has loved you with the greatest depth of love imaginable. The Father sending His own Son, giving up His own Son to die on a cross, the debt that we actually deserved so that we could be forgiven. So what do we do with this this morning? Well, just a couple of things. If you have no interest in the things of God, if you have no desire for obedience, no passion for God's glory, you have reason to be very concerned. There are these conditional statements are real. And if you have no interest in, in actually glorifying God, no interest in actually what God has to say and obeying Him, you have reason to be very, very concerned. Now, you can turn even this moment and be reconciled to God. You can turn even this moment and believe on the same Christ that has made these promises. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, now maybe you do need to commit to praying more. Maybe you commit to, to, to wrestling, pleading with God more. But what you don't need to do if you're struggling with sin is worry about whether or not God loves you. If you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, this, this, there, this is real spiritual warfare we're going through. So there are going to be times when we're under attack. There are going to be times when we have days much better than other days. And so, yeah, if we're struggling with sin, if you're caught in a sin, sure, you need to repent and turn to Jesus. But what you don't need to do is wonder, has God taken His love for me? Finally, if maybe you're just, you're just killing it right now in every area. Your kids are doing great. Your job's great. You're not ensnared to any particular sin that you know of. Maybe you just feel like you're, everything's clicking. Well, maybe what God wants to remind you of this morning is it's the vine doing its work in you. It's not your ability. It's not your spiritual insight. It's not that you're any better than anybody else. It's the vine doing its work in you. And as soon as you start to feel like you can do it on your own, God may remind you, in a very gentle way, the way that He does, of the truth of Jesus' words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Maybe this morning God is calling you to repent of your self-righteousness and your self-reliance. Either way, may the Spirit of God do His work among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a rich, beautiful, powerful passage. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the salvation that we have is not something that we have to worry about losing at any moment, but you will keep us to yourself. You will hold us fast. You will continue to love and keep and preserve those who belong to you by faith. Encourage us this morning as we continue to sing in Christ's name. Amen.